Okay, uh, find Revelation chapter 1 in your Bibles tonight, if you would please. Revelation 1. We're going to, uh, we're going to continue to uh, pick up where we left off last week. Uh, I wanted to get a lot further than I ended up getting. And uh, it seems like we always are chasing the clock. Now, uh, if you did not get a copy of this last week, front and back, you may want to get a copy. Uh, I did not, I don't have an extra copy for everybody. If you, if you got one last week, okay. So I hope you brought yours from last week. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. There you go. Uh-huh. You need one? Okay. Is that everybody? You need one. Okay. Okay. And um, Jeff, if you would get these doors in the back, you got it. Okay. Okay, listen to verse 9, beginning in Revelation 1. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to who? To the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So who's the resurrected glorified Christ concerned about? The church. John says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands One like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars... That you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Why do you think the church might be described as a lampstand? Light. Showing light. Exactly. But again, the resurrected Christ is concerned about... 
the state of his church. Uh, Brother uh, Jim, would you lead us in prayer as we get started? Amen. Uh, Look at the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Uh, This is your doctrinal statement as a convention. Uh, Look at this page. uh, It says number one at the top right. Uh, The church. Article 6 is entitled the church. A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers. What do we mean when we say autonomous? Self-governing, yes. An autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ, governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. The New Testament speaks also of the church as the body of Christ, which includes all of the redeemed of all the ages, believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That is your doctrinal statement out of the Baptist faith and message on the church. You know, it was once said, and I think it's a a good reminder... A distorted church will lead, oftentimes, will lead to preaching. A distorted gospel. Isn't that true? That's true. They often go together. You could could flip it around and say a distorted gospel will portray a distorted church. We need to get both right. John R.W. Stott said the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought it is not an accident of history Christ founded the church Uh, Matthew 16 points out that uh, 
Matthew 16, he founded it. Acts 20, 28, he purchased it with his own blood. Acts 9, 4, he ultimately identifies himself with the church. John Huss, the the 15th century Bohemian uh, reformer, put it this way. He said, and I quote, Every earthly pilgrim ought faithfully to love Jesus Christ the Lord the bridegroom of that church, and also the church herself, which is his bride. That's true, isn't it? If we say that we love Jesus, we need to love his bride. Now, his bride is not perfect. Warts and all. The church in the world is what it is. But nonetheless, it is Christ's church. Now, we left off last week talking about, uh, before we got to it, the attributes of the church being one holy, universal, and apostolic church. Let's think of each of these. One holy, universal, let's read a creed that comes out of uh, 481, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, that's a mouthful, isn't it? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through Him all things were made, For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Now notice when it says we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Uh, sometimes folks not knowing what that refers to get upset. It, they, they might think we're affirming the Roman Catholic church. But what does little c mean? Little c simply means universal. It's not referring to the Catholic church. The word Catholic with the little c just simply means 
the redeemed of all the ages everywhere. That is all that means. So if you go to a church service sometimes, I noticed on the screen this morning, I had John, uh, Jonathan change it last time we said it. Uh, I, I had him change it to universal just because of the understanding that some people can, can, can give to it. Uh, but if you go to a church service and they say, we believe in, in one holy Catholic church, don't get upset. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic church. It's talking about the universal church, the redeemed of all the ages. Okay? Ronnie, were you raising your hand? Oh, okay. I thought you had your, I thought you had your hand up. Now, folks... Uh, why did the early church do creeds like that? Because of heresies. In the first, especially in the first 500 years of the church, uh, the early church fathers referred to as the patristics. Who were the patristics? These were the men, the leaders in the church, right after the time of the apostles. These would have been men like Irenaeus, Origen, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, Augustine. All of these guys, they were hammering out uh, key doctrines, how key doctrines applied to the life of believers. And they were fighting heretics. The major heresy that, that really showed up first uh, against the church was what? Well, Judaism at the time of the apostles, but right after this, in the, at the end of the first century, but it really got into full swing in the second century, Gnosticism. Uh, and then you had Marcion. Uh, one church father said that Marcion was a true child of Satan. Uh, Marcion did not believe in any of the Old Testament. He thought the God of the Old Testament was, was bad and mean and evil. Uh, Jesus I can love. After all, Jesus is nice. He went to the cross and died for me. But God, I can't love God. He, he put a wedge between the Father and the Son. The Bible doesn't say that. John 3.16 says, for what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So Marcion rejected all of the Old Testament. And he rejected anything in the New Testament, any book in the New Testament that quoted too much of the Old Testament. Uh, he only accepted like most of Luke's gospel and some of Paul's letters and he rejected everything else. So this is the type of thing that the early church was fighting against. And so what did they write? They came up with creeds, confessions of faith that would help Christians everywhere express our faith. It's basically the creeds are, are the gospel in summarized form. Because if I say to you, uh, state what you believe out of this book, 66 books, Genesis to Revelation, state what you believe out of this book in the next 90 seconds, it's going to be hard to do, isn't it? 
But if you memorize a creed that has all of the main elements of the gospel in it, and the church, as the church would meet together regularly and recite the creeds, what were they doing? They were memorizing the big rocks, so to speak, in the gospel. And so it was helping them to be firm in their faith and helping them to stay on target. That was the purpose of the creeds. Now, Baptists are famous for saying we we have no creed but the Bible, and that's true. But I happen to believe in this, this biblically illiterate day that we live in today... The creeds can actually help us. Again, they're just summaries of orthodox Christian faith. So this was one, okay? And what we see in this, the church is one holy universal apostolic. Let's talk about that for a moment. The church is one. The church is one and is to be one because God is one. Christians have always been characterized by their unity. You look at Acts chapter 4 verse 32. What's it say about the early church? They were of one accord. You didn't know Hondas were in the Bible, did you? They were all in one accord. (laughs) You what? They were packed in there. They were known by their unity. The unity of the church is to be a sign for the world reflecting the unity of God himself. This means that divisions and quarrels are actually a serious scandal. Divisions and quarrels are a serious scandal in the church. Now, notice what Ephesians chapter 4 says about the unity of the church. Read with me Ephesians 4, and let's read verses 4 to 6. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A wonderful statement about the unity of the church. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul argued for the unity of Christians based on their unity in Christ. Unity in the body of Christ is to be based upon our unity in Christ. Unity in Christ produces unity among the members of his body. In the New Testament, we're told that we're one body. Many members, many members, all with a different role or function, but one body. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 27 and 28. Galatians 3, 27 and 28. Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're 
Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. When it comes to salvation, no distinction. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. People coming to faith in Christ, right? Jew, Gentile, male, female. Ground is level. Sure. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, John 17 is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, what was his prayer for the church? That they may be one, Father, even as you and I are one. That they might be one. Now, folks, the oneness of the church is not a visible oneness at the organizational level because we're many, but it is a spiritual unity. Well, not only is the church one, but the church is holy. What is our holiness to be based on? God's holiness. What's 1 Peter 1, 16 say? And Peter is quoting from Leviticus. Peter says, you are to be holy even as God is holy. A filthy church does not communicate what it's supposed to be communicating to a lost and dying world. A sin-stained Filthy church, an adulterous church, does not communicate the right message to the world. The church is universal. The church is universal. No church in a particular place at a particular time composes the church in its entirety. At Pitts Baptist, I think it goes without saying, we do not compose the church in its entirety. Every local church of all times factor in together to make up the church universal. The church is apostolic. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, the church is built upon who? Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, but it's built upon the witness of the apostles and prophets. Again, with Christ being the cornerstone. The New Testament is not talking about apostolic succession in terms of persons, but in terms of the truth. The truth we preach should be the same truth that the apostles preached, right? That's why the New Testament tells us, for instance, in the book of Jude, that we are to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Truth is not in a state of flux. It's not changing generation by generation. Regardless of what this, this current age says, truth is not changing. Truth remains the same. 
Now, obviously, there are different applications for your life or my life as opposed to somebody who lived 500 years ago and didn't know anything about electricity or automobiles or any kind of travel we have today or computers or whatever, different ways of applying the truth. But truth doesn't change. Truth is truth, and all truth is God's truth. And the truth of the gospel goes all the way back to the apostles. Okay? So some very obvious things that are stated in the early creeds of the church. Okay? Very, very basic things that are communicated there. Now, what I want us to do is talk for a moment about, because of this last one in particular, one thing that we do not have the liberty to do in the church is change the message in any way. Uh, The church has its governing document. And I'm not talking about our Constitution bylaws as a church. What am I talking about? The Bible. Folks, when we talk about the church, we have to at some point in here talk about the Scripture. Tragically, many churches today turn to things like pragmatism when it comes to decision making. They just simply want to know what works. But what works may not be what's pleasing to the Lord. Everything we know about God, everything we know about God and God's will comes to us how? From God's revelation. In his word, the Bible. We only know the gospel because God has made the gospel known to us through his word. We only know about Christian discipleship because God has made it known to us in his word. In a few minutes, we're going to turn and look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. But that's certainly a pivotal passage that talks to us about the Bible. The challenge for churches today in all that we do is to live by the book. And folks, where we find that we're not living by the book, there's only one thing we're supposed to do. And what is that one thing that we need to do? We need to repent. Repentance. And bring our lives in accord with God's plumb line. Okay? I want you to listen to what Mark Dever says uh, in, in his book right here at, uh, on the church. Um, by the way, only one of you in here, and that one is not even among us tonight. Only one of you in here, and he's not been back, said you wanted a copy of this book. I do have a couple if you want one, okay? Um, But anyway, listen to what he says about the church and, and the Word. 
He says, though creativity and innovation can play a secondary role, they should not be the principles which govern worship in the local church. Think about it. Christians are required to gather as churches. Therefore, when a church decides to implement a non-biblical practice, it effectively requires Christians to approach God through that non-biblical practice. The problem, of course, is that human beings have always proven to be unreliable guides for inventing ways to approach God. He's talking specifically about the Bible being our guide in worship. Again, the problem, he says, is that human beings have always proven to be unreliable guides for inventing ways to approach God. In the Bible, human inventions were again and again counted as idolatrous. Consider the golden calf incident, Exodus 32. The Israelites sincerely desired to worship the God who had delivered them from Egypt. But then they went horribly wrong in their approach to God. Their disobedience, idolatry, and adultery showed itself in a grotesque distortion in their public worship. Throughout the Old Testament, we find that how God's people approach God in worship is a matter of utmost seriousness. A matter about which God himself is not indifferent. God has told us in his word everything we need to know about what's necessary to approach him together. One of the things that separated the false gods from the true God in the Old Testament is that the false gods were mute while the true God spoke. People can creatively devise how to approach a mute God, but they must listen to a speaking God. Jesus quoted Isaiah when he was correcting the distortions that the traditions of the Pharisees brought to to the worship of God. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far, far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are, by, are but rules taught by men. Dever goes on to say, depravity makes us unreliable guides. We need God's self-revelation or we are lost. Everything my own church does in our time together on Sunday morning, we intend to do in obedience to God's Word. And he gives examples. He says, we begin with a scriptural call to worship so that we formally begin our time by hearing God address us in His Word. Secondly, we may corporately recite various summary statements of what the Bible teaches Just as Romans 10.9 calls Christians to confess what they believe with their mouths. Third, we sing hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs because we're commanded to do so. Ephesians 5. We pray in praise and we pray in intercession as instructed to. And again, he lists the three Bible passages. Fourth, we read God's Word to one another. Fifth, we confess our sins. 
And then we remind ourselves from some passage of Scripture that God freely forgives our sin through Jesus Christ. Next, we give financially as God has instructed and as exampled in 1 Corinthians 16. Next, we attend to preaching as God commanded and as exampled throughout the book of Acts. Lastly, we baptize as Jesus commanded and we celebrate the Lord's Supper as He instructed. He asks the question, How then should we worship? What's the answer? The answer, he says, is in the Bible. Yes. Uh, It's, let's see, Roman numeral 18 and 19 are the two pages. Roman numeral 18 and 19. So again, tragic that I'm not going to say the majority, but in far too many places across the world. Uh, The church turns to pragmatism or human desires or whatever to determine how they worship and how they conduct their business. When the Bible is to be our guide. We're not free to do anything we want to do. In our, in our worship, in our mission, in our ministry, we're not free to do whatever we want. At, at, we don't have the right to do that. Now, let's talk more about Scripture. And... Uh, Some of you who have gone through the doctrine of the Bible with me previous, a little bit of this, some of this will be some repetition, but, but, but that's okay. Uh, the doctrine, when we talk about the Bible, and again, the Bible being the book that church has got to be based on, when we talk about the doctrine of inspiration, What does the doctrine of inspiration naturally lead to? Infallibility. Or inerrancy. Inerrancy, without error, infallibility, not even able to err. So the doctrine of inspiration naturally results in the doctrine of inerrancy. It's precisely because we believe the Bible is God-breathed that we also believe that the Scripture is inerrant. Now, when we speak of the inerrancy or the infallibility of Scripture, what are we referring to? The original autographs. Exactly. We're not referring to all of our translations. We're referring to the original uh, autographs. 
Now, a working definition of inerrancy simply means the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is false or contrary to fact. In the simplest understanding of the meaning, it just means that the Bible always tells the truth about whatever it addresses. Some have tried to say the doctrine of inerrancy only applies to matters of faith, but that's not good enough. Inerrancy extends to and includes the Bible's words about everything, including history or science. Nobody claims the Bible to be a science textbook. Nobody claims the Bible to be a a history book, but when it speaks to these matters over and over again, as men learn more about things, they come back around to saying, whoa, look there, the Bible was accurate all along. And that shouldn't surprise us. The Bible speaks truthfully whatever it addresses. Now, the Bible can, can be an errant and still uh, speak in ordinary terms or in round numbers without discounting the doctrine of inerrancy. What do we call that? Phenomenological language. Boy, that's a 10-cent word, isn't it? Phenomenological language. For instance, the Bible can speak about the sun rising. Does the sun rise? No? No? Would you rather the Bible say when the earth tilts such and such degrees on its axis as it revolves? You know, would you rather say that or just simply say the sun rises? The sun rises. Phenomenological language. The Bible speaks the way you and I speak. Okay? Now... There there are theories of inerrancy. There's the dictation theory. What's that? Well, just what it sounds like. Anybody in here? Have you ever dictated a letter to... Did you have a secretary taking shorthand and you dictated a letter? Anybody? The dictation theory says, now this is not the best theory. Now there are some points of the Bible that have to be dictation theory. There are some points of it. Because men wouldn't have known. They would have had no way of knowing. But overall that's not the best theory. That God just simply dictated verbatim 
to the biblical writers. I keep dropping parts of my, where did that go? My lid went somewhere, it's going to dry out. Oh, it went behind me. Okay. Then there's the... Illumination theory. What's illumination theory? This view simply holds that the biblical writers had the Holy Spirit working on them in such a way that their religious insight was elevated. Again, not the best view. Then the encounter theory. This was popularized by um, neo-Orthodox theologians like Karl Barth in the 20th century. Uh, he would have said there's, there's really nothing more special about the Bible than any other book except that the Holy Spirit is able to use the Bible in a unique way. When the reader reads it, the Holy Spirit causes a particular passage to speak to the heart of the reader. And in that moment, the Bible becomes the Word of God to the reader. We would not accept that. In evangelical life, we would not accept the encounter. It, that doesn't say nearly enough. Okay? Okay? Then there's the dynamic view. This was in large part a reaction to the dictation view. This view held that the Holy Spirit inspired the concepts and the thoughts of the writer, but basically left the fleshing out of the words to the individual author. Again, doesn't say enough. Uh, the, the view that most conservative evangelicals have embraced through the years. Is the verbal plenary view. Verbal, what does that mean? That while God used the personality of a writer, God knew the personality of the writer he chose because he made that person. So while God knew the personality of that writer and used their personality, God even inspired the words that they would choose. And plenary means what? All of it. Full. Full. So even the words and all of it. So that means, this means that the, the genealogies that you read in Genesis or in Matthew 1 are just as inspired as 
John 3, 16. No part is any more inspired than any other part. Now, a part of it may be more useful to what you're going through at some particular period in your life, but the, all of the Bible is completely inspired. Even the words. And that's why preachers and teachers will spend time in teaching a lesson. They might even go into the tense of what the word was in the Greek language and the significance of that or the word picture behind that word. Believing that God chose even the words. I think without a doubt that is the best view. The plenary verbal. And again, why do we even talk about this? Because in the church, what I said to begin with, you and I are not free to believe whatever we want to believe or conduct ourselves in the church however we want to conduct ourselves. The Bible is to be our guide for faith and practice. It determines what we believe and it determines how we act and how we live out our faith. Okay? Uh, Let me ask you to turn to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 3. Somebody read verses 16 and 17. Somebody that's got a good, strong voice that the whole uh, congregation can hear you. Who would do that? Okay. So if we were to talk about the nature... The nature of Scripture. What would we say about it? All is inspired. Now, when Paul wrote that, what would have been his Bible? The Old Testament. Exactly. Do you ever run into any Christians today who say, why do we even read the Old Testament in the church? Have you ever heard a Christian say that? Why do we ever even study the Old Testament? Aren't we just a New Testament people? I've heard a few of these um, counter preachers. Hmm. Say, say something like that? Yeah. Yeah. It's 
It's, it's all inspired. We would not. Could you imagine picking up your New Testament and beginning to read it if you had no knowledge whatsoever of the 39 books of the Old Testament? You would, have, you would have no idea about some things that are being said. Who's that? Where's, where'd that come from? What's, what's the background on that? Yes. Yes, that's right. Now, when we say progressive, we're not using that word the way the left uses it today. That's not what I mean. To say revelation is progressive just means God doesn't give us the whole shooting match in Genesis 1-1. As you pick up reading with Genesis 1-1 and keep reading, God reveals more and more of himself and his plan. It unfolds as you read. That's why we need to study our Old Testament, right? Because it's God's Word and God started there for a reason. It's important. Now, yeah, keep reading. Get into the New Testament. But the Old Testament's God's Word. That's right. Exactly. And the word he uses in the Greek text when he says all Scripture is inspired. Literally means every part of it. Uh, there's been some false ways of interpreting that verse that, that all Scripture that is inspired, all inspired Scripture is God-breathed. As though there are some portions of Scripture that are inspired, God-breathed, and some that aren't. But as Greek scholars have pointed out, that's not the best way to interpret that verse, that that every, infi- every inspired scripture, and then it's up to us somehow or another to pick out which ones or which verses are inspired and which aren't. That's not the translation. It's all God breathed, all of it. Well, what does, what does Paul say? What's he say here? All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. You go back and read all of chapter 3, and what, what is Paul telling Timothy is the first thing that scripture teaches us? Okay. Specifically, what doctrine? In chapter 3, he's talking about as men are waxing worse and worse. Timothy, you continue in the Word because it was through the Word 
that you came to faith in Christ. The scripture is going to lead us to a knowledge of Christ, how to be saved. It's going to teach us about our sin and our need of a Savior. It's going to introduce us to Christ. And then he, said, he moves on says, you know, once you, once you have that nailed down, Scripture continues to be at work in your life and my life, teaching the believer how to be grounded and discipled. Teaching us how to mature, how to grow up. And then what's he say in verse 17 is the outcome of this? So that the man of God or the woman of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you and I want to be used by the Lord... We need to be people of the book so that we'll be equipped for what God calls us to do. Right? There's some word pictures in the Bible. And again, I'm spending so much time on this because far too many churches today have departed from the Word, sadly. Uh, And they've gone out on their own authority. And it's the crying shame. One of the pictures of the Word that we see in the Bible is seed. Seed. In Jesus' parable of the soils, he, He used that. Uh, that word picture. 1 Peter 1, 23 uses that word picture. What is it that comes from seed? Life. Fruitfulness. Another image we find in the Bible of the word is water. Ephesians 5.26. And also in in, uh, John chapter 3 and John chapter uh, 15 and 17. Just as Old Testament priests washed themselves with water from the laver before they performed their service, so the water of the Word washes us. Keeps us clean. Okay? What's an image that Jeremiah uses? Fire. Jeremiah 23, 29. What is fire? Fire is purifying. Again, the reference, Jeremiah 23, 29. Fire is purifying. Working in in a... A metal factory or something. What what happens when they fire the furnaces up? The dross, the the iron ore or whatever it is, the impurities rise to the top and are poured off. They keep doing that. And then when all the impurities have disappeared, they have the, the pure metal. The word is like a fire that 
that penetrates and burns up in our lives what is not pleasing to the Lord. Uh, Also, Jeremiah gave the uh, image of a hammer. The word being like a hammer. Giving blows to our life. It's kind of like the the, uh, missionary that was out handing out Bibles in a pagan land. And finally one of the pagan men brought the Bible back. He said, here, you can have this book back. Missionary said, you don't want to keep it? No, something about this book. Every time I read it, it it kicks me. (laughs) It does, but it kicks you in the right direction. Food is another image. And you see uh, both the images of milk and meat and honey. Milk, meat, and honey. Milk would be 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 and 3. The word being described like milk. And as newborn babes crave the, the milk of the word. Hebrews 5 talks about progressing from milk to getting into the meat. Solid food and meat. And then Psalm 119.103 refers to scripture as being sweeter than honey. Then what's, what's the image that James gives us of God's Word? Mirror. A mirror shows us what we look like. It reveals things about ourselves, shows us where we need to change. And Hebrews, Kathy, two-edged sword. Think of two edges. I think what's being described there, of course, any way it cuts, it's sharp, but also positive and negative, right? Healing, cutting, cutting away, but also bringing healing. Folks, you find all of these images used in the Bible about the Scripture. And what's that say to us when we look at all of them? Certainly a testimony about how much we need the ministry of the Word in our lives, isn't it? Uh, Write down levels of learning. First of all, appreciation. James 1.18. Secondly, attention. I'll go back over these. I'm just hurrying in the lateness of the hour. Appreciation, attention, acceptance. Appreciation, James 1.18. Attention. James 1, 19, acceptance, James 1, 21, and action, James 1, 22. Appreciation, attention, acceptance, and action, different levels.
some practical helps I want to give you. Memorize scripture. Hide God's word in your heart. Memorize it. Psalm 119.11 tells us that as we hide God's word in our heart, it's going to help us not to sin against God. What's another reason for memorizing scripture? Can you think of anything that might happen in the future? May not have the Bible. What if, what if God carries you to some land where persecution breaks out and Bibles aren't allowed or confiscated? What if you're in a situation, even here with Bibles, but you may be out in the course of the day and you don't have your pocket Bible with you or don't have it on your phone or whatever? If you've memorized it, it's, it's there. You, you can do it. You can memorize Scripture. You really can. Get some three-by-five cards. Write down a verse. And have flashcards. And, and on the way to work at the red lights, not while you're driving, but anyway, go through your flashcards. Memorize Scripture. Carry it with you that way. Repetition will help you remember it. Say it out loud. Involve more of your senses. Say it out loud. Write it down. You're saying it out loud. You're listening to it. You're writing it down. They say you write something down and it is the equivalent of reading something. Just reading alone, reading something. It's the equivalent of reading something 11 times. To write something down one time is the equivalent of reading something 11 times. Write it down. Don't forget your daily Bible reading. Read when you're alert. You know, if you're alert in the morning, read in the morning. If you're most alert in the evening, read your Bible. Do the lion's share of your Bible study at night if you're a night person. Uh, When you're most alert. Read it in sizable chunks. Read books of the Bible at a time. You need, to, you need to start studying the Bible a book at a time the way it was written. Okay? Uh, these little devotional guides. Now, folks, I know, I know they have their place. I know they have their place. Okay? But, you know, <clears throat> you get a little verse here and a little tiny little devotional. And then tomorrow, the devotional may take you to an entirely different book of the Bible, give you a little verse or a phrase of a verse and a little something. And then the third day after that, you go somewhere else in the Bible. You're never going to learn the Bible that way. Study the Bible a book at a time. Get a good study Bible. Where you can have introductions to that book in the Bible. Notes at the bottom of the page. Uh, Now, you know, I would say too, invest in some good commentaries. If if you're studying a book of the Bible and you want to know some good, the top commentaries to buy on that book of the Bible, come ask me. I can help you with that. Okay? Because there are some top, commentaries, some top respected commentaries on each book of the Bible. I can help you with that. 
but at least a good study Bible, uh, buy a translation you can read. Some of, the, some of the main translations in conservative evangelical churches would be what? The King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, the NIV, the ESV, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the NLT, and the NRSV. I'll write some of these down. The KJV and the New The NAS, New American Standard, the New International Version, the ESV, the New Living Translation. It's more of a dynamic equivalent, but it's still a it's it's actually a good translation. It 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 just the way it flows. New Living Translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very good translation. It got a bad rap, but a, it's actually a very good translation. Is the new revised standard version. Excellent translation. Is it the best? No, maybe not. But, but again, the NAS, very literal. The criticism of the NAS is that it's so literal to the Hebrew and Hebrew manuscripts in the Old Testament, Greek and the New Testament. It's so literal that sometimes when you come out of one language into another, if it's too literal, that the receptor language comes across stiff and wooden. Because when you're translating out of one language into another, sometimes you, you have to put things in the idiom of the receptor language. Uh, the NAS is very literal, but again, the criticism is it's in English maybe a little stiff and wooden. Uh, the Net Bible, yes. Uh, you can go online, Bible.org. And print off the Net Bible, or you can go online and, and order a, a bound copy of it. You go online and print it off. You can make up to you can copy up to a thousand copies of it before you even have to notify them that you're making copies. Uh, the Net Bible is the favorite Bible, other than the Hebrew manuscripts. And the Greek manuscripts, the Net Bible, is the favorite Bible of Bible translators. Um, the ESV translators say that the Net Bible made their job easier. Did I not say I, I meant that? Thank you. The Holman Christian Standard Bible. Jeremy? That, that's the criticism of some, uh, like, like the NIV, the gender neutral. But the translators will say, 
and I hear them like, like D.A. Carson, for instance, talks about the, the NIV. D.A. Carson, probably the sharpest Bible scholar in the world, conservative Bible scholar. They, they only do, I know, I know some people make a big deal out of the gender neutral, but they only do the gender neutral when it's clear, the context is clear, they're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. When, it, when they're talking about brothers in Christ, they translate it brothers. When they're talking about sisters, they translate it sisters. But whereas the, the non-gender neutral will just say mankind or something, they will, they will be more gender inclusive. One word got the RSV and the new RSV in trouble in the evangelical world. One word. One word caused evangelicals to look for other translations. And, and this is a shame. I mean, there, there, is, there is a legitimate criticism about the one word. But nonetheless... It's a very good translation. But does anybody know what the one word was that really upset people? Good. Yes. The Hebrew word, the way we would bring it into English, Alma. Which technically Alma means... A young woman of marriable age. What we're talking about is Isaiah 7, 14. The virgin will be with child. The, the RSV and the new RSV translated Alma, young woman, instead of virgin. Now... According to Matthew 1, they should have translated it virgin because the New Testament interpretation of the old, Matthew makes it clear, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's clear Mary was a virgin. But the Hebrew word, they said, technically, technically means... Young woman. So they translated it young woman instead of virgin. And mainly based on that one word, uh, evangelicals came along and wrote this translation off. It is, a, it is a shame it's been written off because it's actually one of the most, overall, it's actually one of the most accurate. Yeah. Hmm, I'm not acquainted with that. We're uh, maybe I was I did some some work with some initial editing um, with with a professor and there was an issue and I think it was changed. 
Okay. Okay. Generally, yes, the context would decide. Uh, it's such a good translation, it's a shame they did that, but they did. But anyway, again, I go into all this tonight because in the church, the governing document of the church is the Bible. Folks, as you leave here tonight, I just want to reiterate, as a believer, you are not free to believe whatever you want to believe or conduct yourself as a Christian however you want to conduct yourself. The Bible is our guide for faith and practice. As individuals, as churches... Scripture is God's plumb line that should govern what we believe in the church, how we govern ourselves, and how we live our lives. The Scripture is the plumb line. It is unfortunate that churches today, far too many, are venturing out in the name of practicality, or pragmatism, or whatever, uh, to be more acceptable by the world, or whatever, too many are starting to do whatever they want to do. And it's disobedience to God. Okay, next week we're going to begin talking about how does God work in His church? How... How, how does he work in terms of through us? And what we're going to talk about is, is the way gifts are used in the church. And we're going to begin talking about the apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers. And then we're going to come over into like Romans 12, for instance, and talk about leadership and administration and teaching and giving and the gifts that operate in the body, how the church functions, how the church functions. Every member a minister. That's what we're going to talk about next week.